720 WGN. It's Amy Youth in for Pete McMurray today. We're going to be talking with lots and lots of interesting people today that I have uh, lined up for you. I can't wait to talk with all of them. But our first guest is Tammy Cabrera. She is the owner of Muddy Paws Cheesecake. Why does that sound familiar? I will tell you why. Because she has some interesting claims to fame, but one of them is she makes 622 flavors of cheesecake. I tried before the show, esteemed producer Curtis and I were sitting around trying to come up with 622 flavors, and we, we could not do it. We, we capped out at about seven. So I'm um, very delighted to talk with you today, Tammy. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Sounds like you're in a wind tunnel. You've got lots going on behind you. Oh, sorry. I'm pulling, I'm pulling off the road. I'm on the way to Lambeau Field. Oh, okay. <laughs> the beam. Yeah. Okay. I'm pulling off the road so you don't have any so less background noise. Sorry about that. No, it's all, it's all good. I, I like catching people in moments, but drive carefully. Don't, don't be driving and talking to us. Oh, I'm pulling off the road right now. Okay. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Timmy. Okay. Well, so tell us about Muddy Paws Cheesecake. I'm delighted by the idea of 622 flavors of cheesecake tell us about the origin of this company okay yeah well i was born in chicago and grew up there and uh, my parents had restaurants i grew up with great cheesecake and um when i moved to the twin cities for marketing um i couldn't find any any cheesecake like i grew up with so i started making it for my office and they were just loved it so much that, they, that their clients started ordering it, and, and then they kept going and going like that, where people kept ordering it. And so I left my corporate job to start doing cheesecake. So it started with 10 flavors, and just um, 26 years ago, and it just kept growing and growing and growing. Wow. that's I mean, I, I love business stories that start almost the accidental business of like I was doing something else but this was kind of maybe a side thing that I had a lot of passion for and it sort of grew because it kind of is one of those like fate is going to intervene if this is what you're meant to do sort of things yeah exactly oh yeah exactly it was something that wasn't really intended but it was like a you know it was it was what I knew and what I grew up with and um yeah and so it just became one thing led to the next and I had a lot of people along the way that gave me you know gave me help and gave me opportunities and it just turned into uh just kept growing and growing i would have never thought it'd be where i was today you know back when i was in my 20s so it's been a lot of fun we get a lot we give a lot of our profits back to charity Uh, we work with a lot of you know neat charitable organizations and um that's that's end up why i named it muddy paws cheesecake is we give a lot of our profits to animal rescue organizations um and that's a, the core of our business yeah i wanted to ask you about that um on the website which is muddypawscheesecake.com there is a there is a tab where people can read about your community involvement and the work that you do volunteering on the advisory board of le cordon bleu and as a guest chef and donor at perspective kids cafe lots and lots of stuff that you do, including an annual celebration. Tell me about that. Um, yeah, so every year we put on a, a toy drive and food drives, um, and we give out cheesecake to anybody. We give out a sampling of cheesecake or 24 different bite-sized pieces to everyone that brings in toys and brings in food, and we work with step and perspectives um, for those for what we receive. Uh, it started with 100 people in my living room, and now 26 years later, we have around 4,000 people attend. So this year, we took in 2,000 toys and over two tons of food. 
That's really, really. So it's a lot of, it's, yeah, it's really rewarding. Rewarding. The community is great about helping us promote it, and it, it's it's a it's a great event. It's a lot of fun. We have bands that come in and volunteer their time. We have twenty five local craft vendors that have their tables there, and it's it's really involved into a you know a great event. And I'm, we're really we're all really proud of it. My staff and I really put a lot of work into it, and it's really rewarding. So I, I should note because I'm already seeing tweets about like hold up there's a there's a cheesecake maker but she's not nearby. You do ship the cheesecake that you make. Correct. Yep, we ship nationwide, and um, we ship to all forty or forty eight states. Um, and also, if anybody's in Minneapolis and can pick one up, they also can be put in your freezer for up to two months. So you can have cheesecake like a little slice of cheesecake every day or something like that Um, but they are affordable to ship and um, they're great for gifts a lot of people like the sampler cheesecakes it's it's 12 different flavors or 6 to 12 flavors in one cake so they they can try different flavors that way not just have all one flavor raspberry swirl New York turtle chocolate decadence key lime I'd say those are our top five but we have a lot of really fun flavors in there, too, that they can try. Salted caramel is kind of a big one right now. I'm sure. Yeah, I was looking through the, the website and some of the things on there. Um, I'm very interested in a Mai Tai cheesecake. That sounds really fascinating. Or the hurricane. Those sound like two great yeah. things that go great together right there. How, so- yeah, and that actually, yeah, that came from a, those two flavors came from a, a restaurant that I used to work at that had those for drinks, and I'm like, those would be great in a cheesecake, and that's kind of how a lot of our flavors happen, are people saying that that might be good in a cheesecake, we experiment with it, and soon enough, it's a flavor, so, um, so it's just, for, for New Year's this year, we came up with a mimosa cheesecake, it was our first ever mimosa cheesecake, and it was really, really tasted good, so that's a lot of how our flavors come about, is sometimes by mistake, sometimes by suggestion, yeah. um, sometimes by experimenting. Sure. Sometimes just aspiring, I imagine, to like, hmm, this sounds good right now. That could be in a cheesecake. Well, exactly. It, it's very hard to look through your website and not immediately want to eat a lot of cheesecake. Because, I mean, I, I was looking, you know, as I said at the top of the show, uh, my producer, Curtis, and I we were looking through all these flavors, just trying to imagine what in the world. Wow, that's so many. And, yeah, now all we want to do is eat cheesecake the rest of the show. So there's that. There's that. And, and so, I mean, that's a... The, you you mentioned the popular ones. What is like? Do you have a maybe like an underdog flavor that's kind of got a special place in your heart? Well, I um, underdog flavor that you know I think is really good that people may not like until they try it is peanut butter and jelly cheesecake. It's a layer of peanut butter cheesecake and a layer of strawberry cheesecake, and it's really delicious together. But at first, people kind of turn their faces up, and when they try it, it's really good. <laughs> um, we've had customers ask, ask for unique requests. A, a regular customer of ours asked for a blueberry pancake cheesecake, which was probably our most bizarre cheesecake, but it's actually very tasty. So it's a lot of fun combinations. We love our customers to give suggestions. Every month on Twitter I ask for different suggestions, and people are really creative. I love their ideas. Um, we're really proud of being one of the last standing artisan, artisan cheesecake bakeries. We make everything fresh to order. Uh, we use old-fashioned, you know, recipe and whole ingredients, no fillers, um, no preservatives, and it takes about 40 hours a cake. So it's one of the last standing um, hands-on artisan makers of cheesecake with no machines and all made from handmade from start to finish, just like you'd make at home, just like Grandma made, I'd say. <laughs> Uh, and I also like to note that for people who uh, might be dairy-free or gluten-free, you do have vegan and gluten-free options, which is very cool because you don't see that too often. 
correct, and we are certified in that, and that's uh, that's very rare for Cheesecake to find a certified bakery in gluten-free, vegan, and lacto-free, so we are certified. We also have uh, Keto Cheesecake is new. We have a sugar-free, wheat-free cheesecake people are using for their keto diets, so that's been a new thing. Okay, you're speaking my language more and more here, Tammy. I'm into this. <laughs> this is exciting. <laughs> <I'm trying. laughs> this is exciting. News. Well, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm going to be sure and tweet out a link to Muddy Paul's Cheesecake, because especially I'm also going to tweet the flavor page, because I want you just to read all these. We were just salivating over them. Like the Guinness Stout, I mean, that or the Oatmeal Stout. There was a Guinness. There was a, gosh, there were so many that we kept just being surprised. There was a Bailey's, like all kind of interesting things that I'm so fascinated by. I'm sure brainstorms are so fun in your in your facility. <laughs> so I, I It is a lot of fun. I love getting suggestions. If anybody wants to treat out ideas, I love those. I love creating them. Yes, well, we will um, we will help help you with with the idea generation there on Twitter a little bit later today because that sounds very fun because I'm curious what people will come up with, and so when we think about you know you were talking about your business and and how important it is to you to that it's handmade that it's you know done the old fashioned way with high quality ingredients. When you think back at the beginning of your business, what advice would you give to yourself starting out as a just from the business perspective? Well, I think everyone should be doing what they enjoy doing, and and you know it takes a lot of it takes a lot of work. I mean, if you but if you enjoy what you do, it won't seem like work. Every still to this day, when I walk in the bakery, I'm excited to get there. Um, and I think if you're not feeling that passion, then it might not be the best. You know, it might not be the best place to for one to be. But you know, I think if you put your passion and you work hard, you can you can reach your dreams. Um, for, uh, to this day later, I, I'm still walking every day. I'm excited to get to work, excited to bake, excited. It's really fun every day of my life. I'm really blessed. So I think that's my, you know, my younger self, I don't know if I knew how hard it would be and how much labor it would be. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's been worth it. It's the, the joy of seeing people's faces when they get cheesecake and how much we're part of people's celebrations of life and weddings and birthdays that's what gives us a lot of joy every single day hearing those stories yeah i'm sure and then also on your website there is something called camp cheesecake that i I don't know what that is but it sure sounds like something i want to learn about tell me about that if you would (laughs) well we um so we used to have several retail stores and we did condense into one to have a greater production area but some people in the twin cities were were missing us, and we thought if we had a, a food truck, we could come to them with cheesecake. So we had we bought a vintage camper, um, 1957 Pathfinder camper, um, and we converted it to a food truck. We were we were the first ever cheesecake food truck. So now we drive that around the Twin Cities to different festivals and organizations, charities, gatherings, so people can get our cheesecake all over the metro area, and um, we can still reach them. And it's been a lot of fun. We do everything from weddings to events to corporate meetings to just, just by pulling up cheesecake to an office for an afternoon treat. So it's it's been a lot of fun having that branch of it to reach people that may not be able to get to St. Louis Park, Minnesota, where our bakery is at. Yeah, well, and that's why that's why you ship things, too. People can order them, um, including a, a, I don't know if you could ship this one, but I do see on your website that you can feed up to 100 people with a giant sheet of cheesecake, which that that's, I'm on board with that. <laughs> I like the sound of that. Uh-huh. Yeah, that came about this, this, this last year because we had a lot of graduation parties that were wanting 
um, sheet cheesecake, and um, and we hadn't had that as an option, so we we came up with that, and um, so that's been a new thing, but it's been a lot of fun for people that maybe wanted to have just small bites of cheesecake and something that was affordable. So it's been a it's been a great addition to our menu, and they serve easy, and you can get your cost to a dollar a person. And it's been for some people that's that's been the way to go. Graduations and in large large weddings have been loving the sheep cheesecake. I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, Tammy, thanks so much for joining us today. I know you have you have things to do on your way to Lambeau Field. <laughs> How's the weather up there? Is it? Did you get a lot of snow? It's, it's not as cold as they thought. It's about 19 degrees. It's, it's not as I think I actually think it's about 25 now, but it's not as as cold as they were thinking it was going to be. So I don't think it's going to be too uh, too treacherous. Yeah. Okay. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's not as not as cold or snowy as we thought it would be down here either. So good news all around <laughs> with that winter storm blowing through. Well, Tammy, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Tammy Cabrera is the owner of Muddy Paws Cheesecake. Appreciate you talking with us today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. All right. So lots going on there. Everybody, again, head to muddypawscheesecake.com. And if you follow me on Twitter a little bit later this afternoon, I'm going to tweet out a link to that so you can marvel and ogle at all these beautiful photos on her website. It'll also be on WGNRadio.com. And it will be on WGNRadio.com thanks to esteemed producer Curtis Cook. All right. Good time. So we're going to take a little break back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. Hello. It's Amy Guth in for Pete McMurray today with you till five o'clock. So at the top of the show, I said, hey, you should get excited about all the exciting and fun and smart and interesting people coming in here today to talk with you. And... Was I wrong? No. Here's the second example of that. Nikki Lynette is here with us today. She is in studio. Let me make sure I've turned on the correct microphone. Hi. Hi. You know what? I was thinking right before you walked in the studio, Nikki, I think it has been 10 years since we've been on the radio together. Since. Because we were over at Tribune Tower, over there on Michigan Avenue. I think it was a long time ago. It was. We've come full circle, though. <laughs> it's been a we've thing. upgraded so significantly since then. That's true. We have yeah. made some big changes in our lives since then, for sure. <laughs> well, so um, last time you were here, you were talking about your music, which is still a thing. And everybody, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm going to be sharing some links to all of the exciting musical things that you do. But here today, we are talking about a really exciting project. You've got many projects cooking. Kind of <laughs> all of a sudden, you're doing a lot of things out of nowhere. I've followed you on social media for a long time. Uh, but uh, one of those things is a production that you're doing with Steppenwolf's Lookout series. Tell me about this play and, and kind of the backstory of how it came to be. Girl. Okay. So my play is called Get Out Alive. It's going to be, uh, it debuts, its theatrical debut is at Steppenwolf um, from January 30th to February 2nd. And it's being produced by an amazing group of people, uh, Ira Antelis, Brandon Bowers, I think David Bell's involved. Um, some amazing people on the team, directed by Roger Ellis. And the the thing about my play, I call it the little play that could. <laughs> like, because I initially, like, girl, I never wrote no play before. <laughs> this is my first time. And what happened was I went through, uh, as you know, I went through a really serious mental health crisis. I had a breakdown after having a couple really bad things happen to me, going through a really toxic relationship. And it Led, led to me being hospitalized and being diagnosed with PTSD and, and an anxiety disorder. So dealing with depression for many years uh, led to that. And coming out of it was a challenge. And so when I finally started getting better, 
I sat down with Ira Antelis. If you do not know who he is, Google it. He is the man. And he says to me, like, you should write a play about, you know, like your experiences. Maybe, maybe if it's something good, maybe I'll be able to help you, you know, get it out there or something. Like neither of us really knew. He was kind of telling me to do it kind of more from a cathartic mm -hmm. standpoint, from a creative standpoint. I don't think either of us really knew what we had on the line. And so I'd never written a play before, Amy. You know me. Like I'm a rapper and I can write like articles. I used to write for the trip and for all Red the blog posts all yeah. the things yeah i still have my uh chicago now blog i just do the nikki lynette blog for yeah. black history month every year like no matter what without fail but what happened was i'd never written a play and so and i was very insecure about my ability to then it just so happens i get a call from pussy riot Mm -hmm. And they wanted me to open for the first three dates of their American tour. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe this idea that I have for the play, I can kind of workshop it on stage mm -hmm. at the Pussy Riot concert and see if it works. And so I did that and all three nights it killed. And so my producer, Ira, he saw what I was trying to do and he's like, finish this. We need to get it out there, you know. So he took me and we presented it to two different people. The first one, he's like, yeah, that's good. The second one was the person that ended up getting me involved with American Music Theater Project. And I became the first black woman to ever have my work produced by American Music Theater Project. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and so what 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 is the reach of the American Music Theater Project? Because they do a lot of stuff. There's a lot going on with them. I mean, just kind of I know, digging through like their work online. There's so much going on. Internationally, like they be having plays like in, in festivals in Glasgow. Like this is a... I didn't know about theater, Amy. I didn't know... It's like a whole new world. <laughs> I didn't know that there was the the theater was such a, a internationally recognized art form, so far reaching. Mm -hmm. I never thought about it. I always thought that what I did as a as an indie artist was harder because I have to write a song and I have to be cool and I have to go online and I have to do a concert. But theater is different because every second you are on that stage, you have to be conscious of so many different things. And American Music Theater Project has been around for 15 years. So they've developed work from people that have like won Tony Awards and stuff like that. And the beauty of it is like you get to work with Northwestern students. And so like my the initial workshop presentation of my play the the two dancers that i had were dancers that were from northwestern and when i tell you that these girls were professionals like they knew things about theater like i don't know a lot about theater because i'm a newbie they knew stuff like i was following their lead like oh that's what downstage is? <laughs> that's what a bomb is you know what i'm saying so like they contributed a lot to my growth too so it's amazing that american music theater project makes this opportunity available for playwrights um, and it's amazing that I was able to be involved with something that people who are like award winning writers have been able to do. I got oh, very lucky. Your awards are coming. Ah. I, I feel it. I know. I know. I know your work. I know how you do. So how would you compare that process of, you know, getting uh, music work released and, and performing it in front of a live audience and that rehearsal process oh. and that preparation? How would you compare that with this, what this theater process has been so far? So what's interesting is like, I feel like it's a coming together of both worlds, which is why I've been very adamant about making sure that we are promoting this play in places where like millennials and Gen Z are going to see it because it's not only for, you know, the traditional theater people it's for people who just enjoy entertainment, period. I think it's a little less highbrow than a lot of plays that I've seen. I mean, in my opinion, I think it's more accessible. Like in my play, my play is a musical. I call it a play, but it's a musical. And a lot of the songs that I that I put into it 
are songs I wrote as I was going through the things that, you know, that, that had, had, that are part of my mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, like there are two songs in the play that legit sent me to the hospital while I was in Nashville working on them. Like I ended up being hospitalized and that was actually the last time I ever had to fill a prescription for meds. I had to be on meds to even finish those songs. So the, it's a, it's a more deliberate Mm -hmm. process, I would say, because now you have this song, right? What does the lighting of this song feel like? What, does the movement around this song feel like? What is your intention? What do you want people to feel while you perform this song? How does it fit contextually into this story? And I have an amazing director named Roger Ellis who figures all of that stuff out for me so I don't have to. It's it's just the whole team around my play is so dope. They make it all come to life in a way I never knew. And now being in theater impacts the way that I perform on stage because when I open for Lion Babe and then over the summer when I opened for Likely 47 mm-hmm. at uh, Wicker Park Fest like I was doing some of the theatrical versions of my songs and not like just the recorded version. Interesting. But, I was curious about that if that would if, if those things would start to merge a little bit or if you'd see influence in your music from theater but and apparently you do. I have and even like so right now I have this um this vinyl project do, I'm doing it's called Band-Aids for Broken Hearts and it's like a mixtape that is only being released on vinyl so if you're a vinyl lover, go Google Band-Aids for Broken Hearts because it's all like stuff that's only going to be on vinyl. But the way that I do my play has influenced the way that I'm doing that project. Like even like some of I'm being more conversational in it and I'm opening up about things that I haven't opened up in music, you know, in my music about before. And even a couple songs from the play are going to be on that project. And this project is where I'm seeing the influence of theater because the drama is kind of showing up in the music. And I love this. Like, this is the evolution of an artist when you like, as you grow, you are supposed to evolve and you're supposed to change. And so I can see my evolution now because I've done theater. Yeah, I, I think I'm very interested in exactly the thing you just said of how many artists really seem lately like more and more it is less about a strict adherence to a particular art form and more about just being open to a creative process and, and whatever form that takes and where that leads them. Cause I'm finding more and more, you know, like this, a musical artist going to a theatrical production or theater bec- incorporating more, you know, maybe there's a band on stage. Maybe there's art happening on stage while it's happening. I think it's kind of an interesting moment in the arts realm where a lot of merging is happening. I love that too. Like I'm a visual artist. I did my first, you came, I I did did my first gallery and sold out of everything. And I thought that was amazing. And I did an acoustic set at the house of blues where I'm like singing and rapping over just guitar. And we sold that out. You know, it was in the foundation room. I didn't like sell out the house of blues. (laughs) Exactly. But you know, it was a foundation room and it was packed. And I think that I don't know about like every genre of music i know about hip-hop and i know about alternative because that's where i that's my world that's Mm -hmm. where i live and you can age out very quickly in those lanes if you do not evolve you can't just do exactly what you came in doing people expect to see the evolution of you and if you can't evolve if you can't grow with people because your your listeners are growing your fans are growing if you can't evolve then why would they continue to listen to you they could just go play their old jam they already know the words to so 
I think our job as artists is to always be giving people reasons to check in and tune in with the new things that we're up to. And that's why I love, you know, I do my mental health advocacy through my art now. I have to do it because my mental illness is a big part of my life. There's not a day where I'm not affected by it in some way. And so to be able to do the mental health advocacy through my art has given me more bravery, I guess, to try new things and experiment with parts of myself that I've always kept more to myself. Like I can put it out there a little bit now because now it has more context. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a, um, as more people have started having candid and open conversations about mental health, I, I, I'm very heartened by that because I think that was such a topic that was so taboo for such a long time. And a lot of people suffered very quietly. And, and I think it's very important that people that have platforms that have had that experience are talking about it. I think that's really significant that we're in this moment, especially for young people. Yeah. And some of us were so, some of us were affected greatly, not only by mental illness, but by the stigma because my recovery was significantly delayed because of the lack of support and the lack of care and the lack of empathy I experienced when I finally came out about it. And so my hope is that through talking about it, I can contribute to it being normalized and that's why part of the reason like when i talk about my play like people say oh you when you talk about mental health you're so brave you get on a stage and talk about it and you're so brave and that's weird to me because i'm not like i i'm not i'm not i would have this is what i do for a living i would have had to get on that stage anyway i have talents that make it so that when i do a thing people celebrate me there are people that don't have that ability they can't get on a stage and give statistics about mental health and have it be well received. They can't, you know, hike up their cleavage and go on <laughs> a show and get the same respect talking about this stuff that I can get because this is what I do and I'm good at it. But brave to me is the people that have to go to work and blend in in a professional environment and not get fired, but they're dealing with depression or mm -hmm. students who have to go to school and study for tests and excel at the same level as their peers, but they navigate in anxiety. That to me is brave. What I do is what I'm supposed to be doing. It's either I'm going to be an artist and I'm going to be real and I'm going to speak my truth or I need to get out the way. Indeed. We're talking with Nikki Lynette right now about her new show, Get Out Alive. It's at Steppenwolf's Lookout series. We're going to take a little break back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. Amy Guth in for Pete McMurray today. We've been talking with Nikki Lynette. She is an independent artist doing lots of cool stuff. She is the vision of creativity, and I am a big fan of all of her work, and she's here in studio with us. We've been talking about her new play coming up at Steppenwolf in their Lookout series. It's called Get Out Alive. If you follow me on social media, I'll be sharing links to it and to her. You can find her website and her connect with her on social media. She's very, very funny on Instagram. Very cool on Instagram and Twitter and all the things. Um, and Nikki, we've been talking about your play and uh, and all of the different creative endeavors that you're doing. And you mentioned the vinyl project that you're working on, Band-Aids for Broken Hearts. Tell me a little more about that because uh, I've, I've heard you talk about it and I've seen the beautiful cover for it. And it's interesting about how your all of your different projects seem to be intersecting around themes right now. Yeah. So Band-Aids for Broken Hearts is kind of the project I wish I'd have had to listen to when I was going through, you know, a really tough breakup. And, you know, my trauma disorder was caused by a negative relationship, something that was very toxic for me. And so now it's kind of like I get to 
speak to people in a loving and empathetic way that speaks to the pain that, that they might be experiencing or people that just want to hear something groovy and kind of raw. And vinyl is making this huge comeback, is making this huge reemergence. And it's such a intimate thing because in order for people to listen to vinyl they have to be at home like when a person puts on a record it's a you're putting it on and you're planning to be in your home it's a very intentional thing you know what i mean and so i wanted to create something like a person's in their home they're listening to it i have their attention how can i impact them and i'm writing from that space and it's it's fun yeah yeah, yeah. and then what is um have you prepared or, or approached vinyl differently than than other music projects yes i have <laughs> because okay so what i'm doing is normally like when i record songs i always record them in my computer first i do like the little vocals on my little you know not studio quality mic and but it sounds really cool to me like it sounds cool to me but it doesn't make the final production because i work with peerless studios and matt hennessy at vsop studios mm-hmm. and matt would never let my computer <laughs> vocals go out like vsop no. don't play that but what I'm doing for this project is I'm recording on top of those. So you get some of that rawness and that initial emotion. It's in there. But you also get some of the studio quality because I'm re-recording certain elements mm. just so it has a higher quality feel. And I'm excited about that because I, for the first time, that initial rawness that I had when I created that work is going to be part of the project. That's mad cool to me. That's really I interesting. Love yeah, that's really creative. And then you also have a documentary that you're working on. <laughs> It's called Happy Songs About Unhappy Things. And the reason I did it is because when I was working on my play, I realized, like, dang, like, yeah, my story is unique to me. This is my story. But everybody got a story. Everybody who ever went through anything that caused a mental health issue or depression or anxiety, they all got a story. And so I'm creating an opportunity not only for people to share those stories, but also to find accessible solutions for people to navigate their mental wellness. Because I think that what we don't think about is that everybody has mental health, right? Like we all have like physical health and we all have mental health that we should be having mental hygiene around. But like, when do we have that conversation? That's right. And so this documentary is us having that conversation. And what have been the, the biggest challenges of making that project come together? Money. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> I am poor. If anyone wants to give me all of their money, I will gladly accept it. <laughs> if anyone would like to produce that or become an executive <laughs> producer. Exactly. Just, um, you know, like, fortunately, I have some amazing people. Mm-hmm. Chris Adams from Impact Studios. Ellie Lyon. She's uh, um an amazing. She's my assistant director. Fortunately, we have some really t- cool opportunities coming up that I'll, I'll come back and talk to you about those because I can't. Gee, I can't tell just yet. That's right. But um, we do have some opportunities to raise some money. I have an amazing uh, marketing company out of L.A. I haven't even publicized this yet, but they've been consulting me. They flew me out at the top of the year last year to L.A. and they want to be involved in the documentary. So they've been consulting me and the next steps are going to be pretty major. So just raising the money for that. It's mm-hmm. not. You know, I, I'm only really having to afford the cost of opportunity. So it's yeah. not that bad. It's just like I'm scared to spend a dime on anything because I have to be able to afford the cost of opportunity for this documentary. So I would be able to like go out and buy nice baller boots or take vacations and stuff like that if I didn't have my documentary to worry about. But, 
you know, I'd rather have my super cool documentary that's making yeah. an impact than some I new flat boots. But I, if anybody wants to give me boots, <laughs> I will accept. <laughs> I'll take the boots. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Well, I'm unfortunately we are running out of time. I wish you could hang out the rest of the day. It's oh, always no so fun to talk with you. Thank you so much again. For those of you who follow me on social media, I will post links to all of these cool things and to Nikki's website. And there will be links posted at wjnradio.com when the podcast is all ready. Nikki Lynette, thank you so much for stopping by today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Always love having your energy in the room. All right, we're going to take a little break back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. Hello there. It's Amy Guth in for Pete McMurray today. We were just having a conversation with Nikki Lynette. And for those of you who want links to that, because I know you all do to check out all of her cool projects, follow me on Twitter or find me on Twitter later and I will share links to everything. But for now, you can go to Nikki, N-I-K-K-I-L-Y-N-E-T-T-E dot com, Nikki Lynette dot com. And you'll see a very cool piece of art. And it says Lynette the Threat right there on her website. And you can find her there. But again, tweeting out all those links later. You know what, Curtis, she said a cool thing. While she, I mean, she said many cool things. Like I got the chills three times talking to her. But, <laughs> you know, um, she I loved how she was like, um, talking about her work and she was like because these are the things that I'm good at and I have the opportunity to share this experience through my work mm-hmm. that reminds me of the thing we we're talking about at the top of the show about how I think we're in a crisis about talking about the things we're good at the bragging thing yeah because we because the idea of bragging has gotten a bad rap when it's like it's not bra- nothing if you did a thing or if you're good at a thing you should be able to say that without anyone being eh. and i loved it she totally said it and i was like that's how i wish everybody could be i think that's a, a segment of like confidence too absolutely like you have the absolute confidence in yourself that you're willing to put yourself out there and do X, Y, Z. And say, know. yeah. And yeah. and there's data around this that, that suggests that the more underrepresented you feel in a room, the more likely you are to kind of softball your accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's been a lot of research around that that, that I've talked about on here before um, that I think is really interesting. So, so, for example, if you feel like you're in a room mostly with your peers, you might say, um, you know, yeah, I did my undergrad work at whatever, pick a fancy school, you know, Harvard, Princeton, yeah. whatever. But if you feel like, wow, everyone in here is more accomplished than me, or maybe maybe you're from an underrepresented group or a historically underrepresented group, something like that, and you're, or you're like the only woman in a room or whatever, you, you might be more likely to be like, I went to school on the East Coast. Yeah. You might be more likely to do that. So I think that kind of stuff is really, really fascinating. But I want to hear from everybody right now. I want to, let's start a new a new thing here. Let us decide that it is okay to be proud of the stuff you're doing. <laughs> it's a fact. It's just a fact. It's not bragging. It's not making up stories. No one's going to think bad. Because look, I see it like this. You know, in Dante's Inferno, they're like the people that had bad attitudes about money were condemned yeah. to push a boulder, right? The miserly people who didn't spend any money or the people who were spendthrift and, and, and were spending everything. Both of them were abusing the same thing. So they had the same punishment of pushing the boulder back and forth, right? <laughs> I think it's like that. If you just say it, you're right in the middle. If you're like, I got my degree or I want a thing or whatever it is, I'm good at this. As opposed to, I am very good at the following things. Then you're like kind of a jerk and no one wants to talk to you. Versus if you're like, eh, I guess I'm okay at this thing because I, I guess I won an award. I guess. Then it's like, either way, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Imagine if it was like a key to unlock something, right? Imagine if you were talking to like a funder 
who's going to fund your project, your dream project. And if you confidently said like, I have this degree and this credential, and this is what I'm doing, and I would love to do X, Y, Z. And then that person was like, well, great. I want to fund that. Here's a million dollars to go do it. Imagine. As opposed to if you were like, well, I don't mean to brag, but I've done all this stuff. Then they're going to be like, man, what a jerk. It's kind of like pitching yourself to the sharks on Shark Tank in a way. Yeah. You have to just say. Be without- confident and say, here's my background in this business. Here's yeah. what we've done so far. This is why I'm worthy. You know, this is why I'm worthy of your investment of ten See, uh, of 20% of $100,000 in my company. Or that's whatever. right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And here, as predicted, this is I have wanted to try this on the air for a long time. Crickets on the phone. Well, I mean, people could call and they could brag about their grandson or granddaughter. Right, somebody, somebody made the dean's list or something. I want to hear. What yeah. are you proud of right now? 312-981-7200. You can text. You can call. Be kind. But I want to know. I want to know. What are you proud of? I would love to hear if you're proud of somebody else. Hey, my spouse or kid or whatever just did the following. I want to hear that. But I really challenge you to call me and tell me something you are proud of that you did. That's where I think we need to practice. We need to build up that muscle. Let's start with you. Curtis, what are you proud of? Uh, I'm proud of my work ethic. Um, I get asked a lot by uh, management to fill in, not only just here. You pretty much are here all the time. I'm here a lot, yeah. (laughs) All over the place. Uh, so I'm proud of my work ethic. I'm proud of yeah, helping good. others. I feel like I, I'm a very friendly, easygoing guy. Totally. Um, easily more of the the helpful kind more than the just like I figure it out for yourself sort of people. Oh, definitely. So that's that's definitely something I, I'm proud of. Proud of the work I do here. Yeah. Obviously, I do a ton of stuff here. So people are yeah. calling. People are starting exactly. to call. I'm getting excited about this. Well, I think this is a really interesting idea. I maybe we need to invent a hashtag for this because I want to make this a regular thing where we can without issues, without angst, without any kind of consternation, without being afraid that we're going to look bad. I want us to be able to say, "Here's a thing I'm proud of." I would love to know that from people because I'm fascinated by that. I love Anything involving like joyful human spirit stuff, anything under the go humans go category. I'm always really excited about that. So whether it is maybe you won something, maybe you made a big New Year's resolution and you've already made a little progress on it and you want to talk about that. It doesn't have to be big. I'm using big, silly examples just to illustrate my point, but it could just be like, hey, you know what? I cleaned my dang kitchen and I'm really proud of that. Let's talk about it. I want to hear from you. I will not... I will not give anybody grief. I just want to know the things that you are proud of. And again, if you want to call and brag on someone else, you can. But the real thing we're after here is I want to hear the thing that you've done that you are proud of. And we're just going to say it. We're not going to go, well, I don't want to brag. But no, we're just going to say it. And it's going to be totally good and totally fun. We've just talked to two people on the show so far today who've done really cool things. Here was We talked with uh, the woman, Tammy, from Muddy Paws Cheesecake, who was like, you know what? I was in one field, but this was my passion, and that's where it led her. Then we talked with Nikki Lynette, who's this artist who takes on so much stuff, but is also bringing in very personal stories and being very vulnerable in her art. I'm fascinated by that. And both people were able to say, "These are these are things I'm good at. And these are the things I want to talk about. So let us go to Julie in Mount Prospect. Julie, what are you proud of? Well, after 31 years of working in healthcare, um, 
as a nursing home administrator. I started my own company in December of 2017, and it was a very scary thing to do because I left behind a CEO position with a 401k and health insurance, um, and I just left it and started my own company. And while I'm making about half of the amount of money I was before, I am so happy doing what I'm doing. Julie, that's awesome. What is your company? What do you do? My company is called Enlighten Elder Care, and I provide training and education for caregivers caring for older adults, either professional caregivers or private caregivers. And I, my specialty area is dementia care. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. How did you get the idea for that business? Um, I actually am a trainer, a certified master trainer for a company called Age Hate, and Age Hate develops the training curriculum, and then I'm a subcontractor for it, and I take take the content out on the road. But after working uh, primarily in nursing facilities for so many years, I realized the gap that we have in our society with our aging population and um, many many people who are providing caregiving services to those older adults who have had no education, no training, they have no understanding of the aging process or particularly how dementia uh, plays out in an individual. So I just... It, I think it was just something that was born out of the many years of of working within the senior care continuum that led me to this place of understanding that people need education and training in this. Julie, this is so awesome. That that topic is one close to my heart. Several members of my mm-hmm. family have suffered from Alzheimer's and dementia and interesting. And and, yeah. and negotiating their care has been a huge huge thing of it. It's been huge. Sure. I I may have to hit you up after the show. It's really it's a I'm so thrilled that you're doing that. Well, thank you for calling, and I'm so excited for your your business, and I'm so thrilled that you called. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Julie. All right, we're going to go now to Cheryl, who's calling from California. What is the thing that you're proud of doing, Cheryl? Um, I gave gave away and sold all my possessions a year ago, retired a little early, uh, moved in with my daughter so they could have a full-time nanny, and they can pursue and get their careers and uh, talk away some money for a while. Wow. They're, they're military, so they move. We started in Hawaii, and now we're in California, and I have no idea where we're going to be next. And I do not miss owning all that stuff. Wow, that's so interesting. I did a whole show one time just talking about decluttering and stuff. What was the biggest challenge with, with selling off all your stuff? Um. Well, I don't, I think, um, my, leaving my friends, mm. uh, I, I was in Indiana, but I, I'm, I left my friends and I, you know, there's airplanes yeah. and there's internet and there's Facebook and yeah. all that, you know, I keep in contact with my good friends and, and I love it. Um, I, I do want to say something <laughs> the woman that was on before me, uh-huh. good for her. Okay. I worked in home care. That is such a need that she started. Yep, totally. That's that, that's what I was thinking as she was talking. I, you know, my family has been impacted by that very issue, and I, the, just negotiating the care part was so huge. There's a huge need for that. I was so excited to hear about her business. Well, we yeah, we just uh, my father passed, but we did my mother and my father, and uh, 
you know, we basically did the care, but we also had to hire somebody. Yeah. Um, and there's not enough trained people. No, absolutely not. So that was very cool to hear from her, to hear from Julie yes. about her company, Enlighten Elder Care. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Well, I'm excited for your adventure, Cheryl. That sounds really cool. That's wonderful what you're doing for your daughter and her family. And uh, the, as she's she's a military family and traveling and moving and can move sometimes at the drop of a hat. But it sounds like you are having some good adventures in the process with your, with yes. your daughter's family. Yes, it's wonderful. And how old are your grandkids? Uh, well, uh, six and three, uh, three and a half. And then um, when they're not, when they're off, I can fly over to Texas and visit my other grandkids. Oh, there you go. Um, yes. And then, you know, the only thing, I, my only biggest drawback, I guess, if I go into a store now, I almost get anxiety about purchasing anything. Mm, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you what kind of what how that changed you. I, I imagine it probably it was probably so hard to get rid of. It was such a process, I imagine, to get rid of your stuff that yes. it's probably kind of terrifying to think of adding more. <laughs> the only thing I kept is I have a collection of Swarovski crystal ornaments that I've collected for years and years, and I'm still going to collect them and. Sometimes if I'm home at Christmas, I'll put up a little tree. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, it sounds like a very freeing choice. It sounds like you've got is. a lot of freedom for that for that effort. Well, good for you. Thank you so much for the call, Cheryl. That's so exciting that you took that big step. Thank you. Love your show. Thank you. Appreciate you calling in. All right. Have a good one. All right. We're going to take a break. But on the other side of the break, I still want to hear from you. What are you proud of doing? Thank you so much to the two people that called, Julie and Cheryl. There was a couple of other people who called. Sounds like we may have got disconnected on a couple of people, uh, but feel free. To, I'm going to get to as many calls as I can. 312-981-7200. You feel free to text if you're feeling a little shy about being on the air, or you can send me a tweet. I'm at Amy G-U-T-H, Amy Guth on Twitter, and we will read some of those tweets and texts on the other side of the break about the things you are proud of doing. Back in just a bit here on 720 WG. 720 WGN. It's Amy Guth in for Pete McMurray today. Thanks for being with us and thanks to our callers. I still want to hear from you. And if you're feeling shy about calling, you can text us. But I want to know, what is the thing you're proud of? Because here's why I'm asking. I think we're in kind of a crisis of getting credit that we deserve. I think people, I think we're a little shy sometimes about saying something we're proud of. And the two people that called, Cheryl sold all of her stuff and she's mo- she's living with her daughter and caring for her grandkids and she's in Hawaii and California and doing all this cool stuff and she sounds sounds like she got a lot of freedom from that and then Julie who called started her own company Enlightened Elder Care after a very she said she was in a comfy CEO role and it was scary but she did it that's what I'm talking about people that's exciting and I think sometimes we clam up because either it's like, well, if I say the thing I did, I'm going to sound like a jerk. But if I don't say it, then I'm, you know, not getting credit. Forget it. I'm I'm calling for a revolution on that right now. So I want to know the things you are proud of. And again, if you don't want to call, if you're feeling shy about it, you can text us 312-981-7200. Anything exciting happening on the text line? I'm looking at Twitter. Yeah, also. we got we got a bunch of texts coming in uh, from the 219. I'm proud of my four kids who put God first in their life and their families are being raised passing on their faith from one generation to the next. That's nice. I have no greater joy. Uh, that is from the 219 area code. Uh, 
Another text coming in. So proud of my wife and kids for supporting me through four plus years of recovery since breaking my neck in a car accident. I wouldn't still be here if not for them. That's so nice. Uh, 847 texting in. After 30 years as a labor nurse and raising four kids, I went back to school and got my master's degree to become a nurse practitioner at age 57. Now I work full time as a nurse practitioner in women's health. Cool. And then from the uh, 727 area code, I am super proud of losing 30 pounds. I completely changed my diet and workout four to five days a week. I feel great. That's awesome. See? It's easy. We can do this. We can do this. I'm telling you. We got to come up with a hashtag now, Curtis. We need a hashtag that's like the, the um, what do we call it? Because I don't even want to use the word brag because... You do bragging rights or hashtag... Bragging rights. I'm going to write this down. I think that's perfect. Okay. Because I I know that word gets loaded for people. People are like, I don't want to brag, but I did. I want you to brag. Yeah. Anytime someone says that to me, I always say that. People go, well. hashtag brag to me. Brag to me. That's good too. See, Curtis, you're a genius. Brag to me. I'm writing all this down. This is good. (laughs) I think it's important. I think it is. Because imagine, um, you know, here's what, I mean, I I said why this is on my mind, but in some of the work I've done outside of radio, I've I've like worked with a lot of experts to kind of media train them and get them comfortable on the air because we always need smart people to talk about their expertise, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was working with some people, their PhDs and their professors and, you know, really smart people that had unbelievable areas of expertise. And they were like, Oh, well, I don't know if I can talk about that. I was like, who better than you? You invented that word. Like, you invented that word. You, that's your PhD dissertation is on that word. We have a couple of texts suggesting hashtags for us. A oh, hashtag good. Hashtag brag tag. Brag tag. From the 727. And then 815 hashtag proud of me. Oh. I Okay, now I have too many that I like. What do I do? <laughs> These are good. Um, here's another text from the 630. Proud of my volunteer efforts. Always been a busy volunteer, mostly through kids' schools. I just accepted the role of event organizer for a St. Baldrick's event. Oh, that's so cool. My friend did St. Baldrick's. She and her dad did it together. She grew her hair. It was long. It was like way past her shoulders. And she had her hairstylist come. She like threw a little party. She had her hairstylist show up and she was like, if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be this person who's cut my hair for years and years and years. And the first thing he did was he grabbed her bangs. She had, you know, like very pretty bangs and then very long hair. He grabbed her bangs and shaved her head right down the middle so she couldn't back out. (laughs) So she couldn't chicken out or anything. She didn't. She did it. She shaved her head. She raised a ton of money. I don't remember what her final number was, but it was it was fun. And it was kind of cool that we were all there to support her and cheer her on. That was kind of cool. So, uh, again, if you are super proud of something, I want to hear from you. 312-981-7200. You can also text that same number. Let's go to Dan in Oak Park. Dan, I'm sorry, in Oak Lawn. What are you proud of, Dan? Hi, uh, I'm 32 years old, and for the last 20 years, I've battled uh, substance abuse. And I'm going to brag that today marks five years of me being completely clean and sober. Oh, Dan, that's awesome. Good for you. Congratulations on that huge milestone. That's today. Today marks the day. Yes. That's so cool. What? Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Could I give a quick shout out to my daughter? Definitely. 
I just want to say hi to my daughter, Guinevere. Her birthday is going to be January 31st. She turns 13. She finally becomes a teenager. Oh, oh boy. You know what? My dad had a whole like a whole head full of hair until I turned 13, and then it was gone. <laughs> That's what I hear. I have a nice head of hair. <laughs> Take lots of pictures now because it'll be gone real soon, and then you can show her later when she's in her 30s and 40s. You can be like, hey, you know what? Look, notice I had all that hair till you became a teenager. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Dan... Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a totally a tool of guilt. Absolutely. Well, Dan, I'm so excited that you called. That's so awesome. Are you, um, you know, what do you have advice maybe that you want to give or, or, you know, a, a thought uh, you could share with other people who might be looking to hit the same milestone or maybe still struggling with addiction right now? Yeah, of course, because I had trouble with the anonymous groups, you know, like AA and NA. Yeah. But I know that that route's a really good route for a lot of people. What I found was really helpful was building a support network that people that pe- with people that would hurt you, not harm you. Um, with me finding a therapist, someone I could talk to, knowing that there would be no judgment and not keeping things in my head, mm-hmm. and working on mainly never giving up because it's never like I know it sounds cheesy, but it's never too late. Like. You can get your life back, whether you're 20, 30, 60, there's still a chance. And you just can't lose on to that, you know, just a little bit of hope. And it, it always just starts with one step, you know, like if you just head in the right direction, it's going to, it's hard, but it's worth it. So. Indeed. All right. Well, thank you, Dan. I really appreciate you sharing that and appreciate the call so much. Have a great day oh, and, and happy birthday to your daughter. Thank you very much. All right, have a good one. That was awesome. That's a great. That's a huge milestone. Five years. That's a that's a big one for sure. Uh, a couple more texts. Yeah. I lost fifteen pounds in four months from awesome. the uh, seven oh eight. Uh, another hashtag suggestion. Hashtag I did it. Ooh, nice. That's from the eight four seven. See, I now have too many hashtags. I have too many good ideas. I'm gonna have to flip. Yeah, a coin. You can never have too many hashtags. <laughs> Those are great. Anything yeah. else on the text line coming in? Uh, not yet. All not right. yet. Cool. Well, those were all awesome. Those are so fun. And I like... I appreciate your answer, too. I agree with all of those things that you said about yourself. Those are all very Thank good. You. All right. Well, thanks for all those calls. We may revisit this topic a little bit, a little bit later in the show because I think this is, this is a good one. This is, uh, I've been wanting to try this a long time on the air, and I'm glad I did. So thanks to all of our callers and texters. We will revisit this, and I will certainly be talking about this on social media for sure. For now, we're going to take a little break. Almost time for news again. Holy moly, the time is flying by. On the other side of news, a very, very exciting guest for you. You're going to stick want to stick around for that back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Across the deserts, bear, man. I breathe the mountain air, man. I travel, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. 720 WGN. Hello, it's Amy Guthin for Pete McMurray this afternoon with you till 5 p.m. Thanks so much for being with me. I appreciate you and I'm grateful to you for sharing part of your weekend with us here at WGN. We're joined now in studio by Laura Powell, who has covered travel for more than 25 years. She helped develop CNN's original travel programming and has covered the beat for the network for nearly five years. You have seen her work, period. It's been in a lot of places. Washington Post, USA Today, National Geographic Traveler, lots of airline magazines, 
all kind of places. So we're very excited to have you with us today. Welcome, Laura. It's Thanks for coming in here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, there's so many topics about travel. I mean, I it's a topic I want to visit every single show of where should we go? What should we do? What's the thing? Da, da, da. But uh, there's a very interesting topic that's kind of bubbling up that you alerted me to. And that is the idea of over tourism. That's a, that's a new word that I've just learned after talking with you. Well, and it's new for a lot of people, although it's kind of been around the industry now for the last couple of years. Basically, it's when too many people overwhelm a place and affect it either environmentally or economically or socially or culturally and basically ruin the destination um, for the locals and for other tourists as well. It can be um, it can take place in big cities like Barcelona and Venice, but it can also take place on remote islands. It's just a matter of if there are too many people coming to a place and the infrastructure can't handle it. That's when over tourism happens. Are there any big places that like when the topic of over tourism comes up? What are, what's high on the list? Uh, the hit list, the the. Top ones are Amsterdam, Barcelona, Venice for sure. Um, Iceland is often on that list. Uh, there's a few islands that you'll you'll see that that are on the list. Bali from time to time um, gets that moniker as well. Sometimes uh, Kyoto in Japan. So sometimes it's just seasonal in nature. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily a year round phenomenon, but certainly the impacts are felt by the locals throughout the year. Sure, sure, and and a little of it is good and it's great for the economy it's fun i know in the summer when there's a lot of tourists here i spend about a week going everybody move i live here i need to use a sidewalk and then i i kind of enjoy watching people navigate and see things for the first time and go oh there was the bridge from perfect strangers or whatever the thing is and that's kind of enjoyable but we're talking about a place that gets really bogged down to the point of damaging it. Really being inundated. And a lot of it is caused, well, there's several different causes, but you take an example like Venice or Barcelona or Dubrovnik in Croatia. And in those cases, what's happening is you're getting these gigantic cruise ships that are coming with 3,000 people, several a day. They're just, uh, the passengers get off the ship, spend the day wandering around. They don't spend necessarily any money because they're not spending, uh, they're not staying overnight at these destinations, but they're merely cluttering the streets Mm. uh, and trying to see as much as possible in the 18 hours they have on shore. So you're seeing that the cruise ship business is is a big part of the problem. And some of these cities like Venice, like Dubrovnik, are trying to cut back on the number of cruise ships that can actually uh, come to port there in order to reduce a lot of the problems. Yeah. So I was going to say, it's not like you can unring a bell. Once people discover a beautiful city, it's hard to say, don't go there. So what it, what do what can cities do to kind of mitigate that? Well, there are a number of different strategies that cities and destinations have taken. I mean, starting with uh, banning cruise ships or limiting cruise ships. Um, some of the places like Machu Picchu um, will have timed entry, so only so many people can be on site at a particular time. It's kind of like the Disneyland approach, right? Um, but it's still crowded. Uh, there are tourism taxes. Sometimes those are taxes added to a hotel room. But in the case of Venice, they're actually going to start traveling. I'm sorry, taxing some of those cruise travelers that only come during the day. Mm. Um, so starting, I believe, in July, they're going to be charging a tax on, on the day trippers. Um, other places like Amsterdam are trying to focus more on 
niche travelers, like higher end, what they call quality travelers, people who spend more money but have less impact on the infrastructure. Um, others are going and trying to distribute their tourists around the country, like Slovenia, which is really focusing on its different rural areas and the wellness opportunities they they can provide the tourists. So there's a lot of different ways people are approaching it. It's just it's a fairly new phenomenon. So it's just kind of the reaction to it is just kind of consolidating into something that will actually have an impact on the local communities. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting topic. I mean, I, what I love to do when I travel, when I when I do get time off to go do it and, and have the opportunity, is I, I always say, okay, where if you're working in this touristy area, where do you live? That's what I always want to know. Where where do people actually live? What's normal here? That's what I want to go see. And I've had some lovely adventures doing that Maybe some safety concerns that I probably should have thought better of. But hey, we only live once, whatever. You know, and exploring that and also what's nearby here, what's worth a day trip. Those have been some of my favorite experiences of just kind of, I'm going to take a day and go here, or maybe I'll, I'll take two nights and go to this other city nearby that's not as big. And I think that's a very interesting thing, approach too. Well, especially because a lot of locals are now priced out of the city centers. Mm. You, you don't find any locals in Dubrovnik anymore in the old town. Same with Venice. They've all been priced out because anyone who actually owns property will rent it on Airbnb instead of renting to locals because they can make more money. Mm. So all of a sudden, there are less places for locals to live in these areas, so they get pushed out. People don't think about that yeah. when they're using Airbnb, for example, but that's a real side effect of too many tourists is a reduced housing stock. And so... I agree. Getting getting off off the beaten track, going to local neighborhoods, um, going to smaller towns is a great way to explore. But nowadays, in certain cities, going to the outlying neighborhoods means you have to go further and further and further out before you actually find a local who actually lives there. That's right. And sometimes you, I mean, I joke about security, but, you know, sometimes you do need to actually and ensure that you're going to be safe in particular i'm thinking about i spent some time in south africa and had like made a point to find some i was warned like you know close to johannesburg you're going to want some help you're going to want some tour guide kind of situation a little bit different around cape town and further down into cape of good hope and stellenbosch and that area but eh, be careful around johannesburg and that proved to be right it was there was some kind of tense moment nothing happened knock on wood but you know kind of tense stuff that i was glad to be with a group yeah and i think sometimes people are so um, focused on themselves and taking selfies and you know looking for the best shot that they're not really aware of their surroundings mm-hmm. and those are the people that are going to be targets of of thieves and that kind of thing so i think people kind of lose themselves when they travel and it's really important to be aware of of safety issues um the state department has a website uh travel.state.gov which lists travel warnings uh for different countries and different areas in different countries so that's always good to look at before you leave um but also just kind of being paying attention yeah. is is really the key to getting anywhere in the world. Definitely. I mean, you mentioned selfies. I I recall just a few months ago, although time seems so weird now, it probably was a year ago, uh, that the Russian government had issued a warning about people taking people having horrible things happen to them while they were taking selfies like please do not take selfies with wild animals please do not take selfies pretending to hang off of a mountain people actually don't pretend like you're dodging a train don't be an idiot (laughs) which is but you know we we, we, we see those stories all the time about you know the hikers who are on a mountain and oh go back a little bit and you know i mean it, it it's it's 
not unusual anymore to see those stories in the news, sadly. Um, and again, that's a classic example of people not paying attention to where they are. Yeah, truly. We're talking with Laura Powell. She is a travel writer and expert on all things travel. We're going to take a little break, come right back and keep this conversation rolling here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN, it's Amy Guth in for Pete McMurray today. Thanks for being with us. We've been talking with Laura Powell, who is a travel writer who does all those things. You can see her work, CNN and Washington Post, National Geographic Traveler, all kind of cool places. If you follow me on social media, I will be sure and share some links to her work after the program because there is lots of cool stuff there. And we've been talking about this idea of over tourism, how people, um, you know, a lot of people going to Barcelona. And it's, you know, not great for people who are living in Barcelona, per- perhaps. Lots of places like that. And the idea of kind of um, maybe looking at alternatives, maybe some cities even saying, hey, we're going to tax you if you stay and if you come in for the day and don't stay overnight, things like that, which I think is interesting. I think we're in, there's a lot of change in a lot of industries, certainly in the journalism world. The travel journalism world is very interesting. I've talked with other travel writers about this. What is the how well let's make a list perhaps where do i start this question (laughs) there are probably many ways that social media particularly i'm going to do radio air quotes the influencers have shifted the work that you do and shifted and and perhaps changed for better or worse the travel writing world how is that have you how have you seen the digital impact of your business well it's interesting because having been in it for a long time um you used to see uh travel journalists and travel writers were somewhat indistinguishable Mm -hmm. um but I, I mean, there was a little bit of a difference where I would say travel writers were more like, oh, let's go to the beautiful beach of Hawaii and blah, 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 as opposed to travel journalists who might take a more critical approach to, to the beat. Um, then bloggers came along. And uh, when that was the hot new thing, everyone said, oh, I'm a travel writer or I'm a travel journalist. But they weren't journalists at all. They were basically, you know, a mom with extra time on her hands or somebody who just liked to travel or, you know, whatever. But they didn't they weren't writing from a journalistic perspective in any way. Then uh, you bring the influencers into the mix. And what I think people still don't realize, even though a lot of, especially younger people, millennia, millenniums, millennials and younger, you know, tend to get a lot of their travel ideas on Instagram. And again, this is another reason why we see over tourism, because a site gets Instagrammed. Everyone wants to go. Everyone wants to take a picture at that particular place. Anyway, um, so but what happens is these influencers at the beginning they they might be getting some free trips mm-hmm. you know which again is as a travel writer and a travel journalist sometimes you do take free trips because frankly you know i can't afford a $15,000 trip some, somewhere when i'm only going to be paid $200 to write about it sure. it is a matter of uh the perspective you go in are you going in with a journalistic perspective or are you going in with a i'm just going to write about good things because then i'll get asked on more trips which a lot of people do so the influencers now not only get the free trip, and sometimes not just for themselves, but for, you know, their their boyfriend or their girlfriend or their parents or, you know, whoever, just bring a whole party along, but they also get paid. So in essence, they're a PR adjunct for a destination or a hotel property. So they're never going to write anything bad or take a picture of anything bad. They're never going to say anything negative. Some will say, oh, yes, we will, because we don't want to destroy our credibility, but the fact is, when you're being paid, not only given a free trip, but also being paid to promote a destination, it's not journalism. Yeah. And and hard to, even with perhaps someone with good intentions, 
probably hard to take off the rose-colored glasses if, you know, you just got this trip to, I don't know, Santorini or somewhere very beautiful and fancy and you paid nothing for it. Yes, exactly. And especially, I think, if you're younger and you don't necessarily have that perspective, like, wow, isn't this great? I could travel around the world for free. Um, But that said, I think people of every age are are susceptible to that idea of we got something free, therefore we're only going to write nice things because if not, we're going to be we're not going to be asked anywhere else. We won't get any more free stuff. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, I'm very interested in in the intersection of Instagram and the travel industry, particularly, you know, we see our friends feeds. Oh, that's so beautiful. How wonderful. So and so is in this warm, beautiful place on this cold day. You know, you there's even ad campaigns running right this minute. I think it's a is a price line where he says, don't hate like their trip book your own, right? And it's all about the joke of looking at your friend having a much better time on Instagram than you are. And it's all that. And I think that that is so influential of, you know, we see beautiful pictures. We don't see the picture of like your luggage getting lost at the airport or scrambling to try to get your currency in the right <laughs> thing, you know, get all that worked out. But you know, maybe influential, but I think the travel industry, the hotels, the destinations that host these influ- influencers are still having a hard time figuring out the return on investment. Mm-hmm. Especially I cover a lot of luxury luxury for an outlet called Skift. And the luxury luxury clients tend to be older, and they're not necessarily spending a lot of time on Instagram. I mean, now it's aging up so that the millennials are luxury travelers. But when the influencer trend started, all these luxury properties were trying to ask 24-year-old Instagrammers to come to their properties. It's like, well, that's fine. But the people who are looking at their feed are also or their parents. Well, no, more likely they're friends mm. who don't have any money. Yeah. So yeah. they're not going to be sta- – so you just spent, you know, $5,000 bringing an influencer in. Right. Paid them another who knows how much. Their friends are seeing their feed, but it's their parents that the hotel probably wants. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But initially that was not necessarily sure. the way to their, no, to their heart. All, right now, again, as things as things age up – Things are changing, but the travel industry is still grappling mm-hmm. with how do we how do we measure ROI? Who's legit? Who's not? Is this really useful to us? Yeah, I think it's very interesting. I mean, I subscribe to a lot of travel magazines and enjoy them. And and then, you know, you open Instagram and you see, well, gosh, this is these two things don't reconcile necessarily. You know, even if it's a wow, that's a beautiful photo. This is a person clearly having a lovely time in a lovely environment. But then you can, you know, I like to dig into a here's how to navigate this place. Here's how to do this thing. That's important to know too because it's not just it's not just for the for the moment capture of of a photo. It's a you want to have this whole experience of a trip. Well, the other thing too is what what moment is being captured. I would I've never done a study of this, but it would be interesting to see how many sunny day versus cloudy day pictures are mm. taken of places, right? I mean even somewhere like Seattle that hardly has any sunny days, I would bet there's a huge percentage of sunny day pictures either because they were taken on sunny days or they were filtered to look like sunny days. So what you're seeing on Instagram isn't necessarily the reality on the ground. That's a very good point. Which, But again, this brings us full circle back to this idea of over-tourism that, that's so interesting. And as you made this ent- this great point of how that can lead to it. If you see a lot of people, uh, so for example, I'm very into yoga. And so I regularly see people posting a photo in front of a very particular tree in Thailand that has like a Buddha on it because a lot of people that do yoga want to go to this tree. And so, of course, I'm like, oh, well, if I'm ever going that way, I guess I should take a picture in front of that tree. (laughs) And again, places like that tree, that poor tree in the middle of the forest somewhere, probably... There's no infrastructure for, right. you know, people coming there and doing, you know, poses in front of it. It mm-hmm. just, 
it, it so people are coming into the forest they're probably um you know ruining the landscape there there's just sure. all sorts of of different implications that are not good the intersection of yoga tourism and instagram is a thing i oh. could rant about for days <laughs> so we won't even get going on that because oh like, yeah yoga is not just a pose like that <laughs> sometimes the best yoga is just sitting quietly okay yeah that's a whole other thing so what can the average consumer do to be mindful of over tourism you know you don't necessarily you can't necessarily just throw a dart at a map how can can you find out about maybe alternative destinations or if you really do want to go to a place that is perhaps very busy with tourists how can you be a good traveler and helpful to locals well i think the first thing is try if you want to go to a venice or a dubrovnik go in the off season or go shoulder season um it was interesting a couple years ago i went to florence in november and no one was there i didn't have to wait in one line i didn't have to make in one res one reservation yeah it was 50 degrees it was a little cool but the experience was so amazing and I was running into local people and it was just, it was wonderful. So the lack of crowds, even though it was a little colder, the offset was well worth it. So I would say if you really want to go to one of those destinations, um, go in the off season or shoulder season and stay overnight. Contribute to the economy. Don't just, you know, train in from a, a cheap suburb and then leave that night. Um, but the other thing is really, there are alternatives. I mean, yes, nothing is the same as as Venice or Rome. But the fact of the matter is there are a lot of really cool things you can do in Italy. You can go truffle hunting in the Piemonte region. You can go to the Dolomites, which are the which is the mountain area and you in the winter you could go skiing and in the summer you can go to a spa or do yoga. You can go to uh, I, something I recently wrote about called Alberghi dei Fusi, which are um formerly abandoned villages which have been turned into like multi-unit lodging but very authentically and done in a way so that locals will come back mm. and live in these villages that were otherwise abandoned so there's agroturismo where you go out in rural areas and stay on farms so i think you just need to educate yourself as to other options in the areas that you want to explore yeah certainly and people need to follow you on social media so oh, they absolutely. can learn about all the things <laughs> well thank you so much i really appreciate you coming by laura powell travel writer expert on all things travel thank you for coming by and sharing your knowledge with us today it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. All right, we're going to take a little break. Come back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. Hello, it's Amy Guth in for Pete McMurray today. Thanks for being with you. Always, thanks for being with us. I mean, always grateful to you for sharing part of your weekend time. Um, so before the break, we were talking with Laura Powell. You can find out about more of her work. Go to dailysuitcase.com or just follow at dailysuitcase on Twitter and Instagram, and you can get all of that good travel knowledge all the time from her. But I'm going to be sure and share that. Um, that'll be on WGMRadio.com with the podcast. And also, I'll be sure and share links to all that stuff after the show so you can find it all and find all the cool stuff that our guests are up to. We've had some awesome guests and we still have another guest coming up. I'm super excited about that. So good. I'm excited as well. I know. And especially like this next guest coming up. He's in the sports wheelhouse. That's your bag. Man. Yeah, that's that's where I'm. <laughs> that's my technical job title besides all the other stuff I do around here as well. It's not super producer. What is your technical job? Title? Uh, sports producer. Sports producer. So, mm -hmm. yeah, having a sports guy coming up. So we're talking with Frederick Frommer. He is a sports writer. He wrote a really interesting book about the Washington Nationals. We're going to be talking with him about that. I love the intersection of history and sports and politics and like all the stuff that comes together in this. Well, book. and the Nationals are interesting franchise because one of the things they do like tradition wise is the president usually throws out the first yeah. pitch at the home opener. 
every year. So that's uh, that's a tradition that's been going for years. And they have the presidential races sure. there, too, with like Teddy Roosevelt and George Washington and Abe Lincoln all running around the warning track out at the ballpark. <laughs> that's funny. Kind of like the sausage races in, at but, Miller but Park. way but more dignified. Presidents, yeah. <laughs> but with way more powdered wigs. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's pretty fun. That's fun. Wait, I can't hear you. What'd you I say? I was saying giant heads and everything oh, like that. Yes. Because they're all massive mascots. Sure. <laughs> That's super fun. So we're going to talk to him coming up in the four o'clock hour. That's going to be super cool. Um, you know, before before we talked to Laura, though, we were talking about things you're proud of. I got to say, I'm still kind of I'm very moved by the people that called and texted by those. I mean, those were those were good. We had Dan celebrating his five year anniversary of sobriety. That is no small task. Yeah. Cheryl sold all of her stuff, retired early, and is living with her daughter and her family. It's a military family, and she's caring for the kids as they move all around. Then Julie, who was a CEO, started her own company called Enlightened Elder Care. That's so cool. They, like People are doing things, Curtis. I'm excited yes, about it. And not to mention all the texts we got into, people losing weight. Yeah. Um, the one gentleman or, or woman who was uh, texted in saying that they were... Uh, Recovering from a car accident where they broke yeah. their neck Oof. and their family was there for them for the past four years. So they were really thankful about that. That's a thing. Yeah. Lots of lots of good that news positive, and good vibes coming through. I think my heart swelled right up during that segment. That was really fun. Well, I'm going to work on that hashtag thing. And the problem is... We got a bunch of good we ones. We got so many good ones. I don't know what one to pick. And I was Googling on the break. I was like, should I take the word brag out of it? Because it's kind of a loaded word. Like brag and boast, by definition, both have the word like in their definition is excessive and i don't want mm-hmm. it i don't and that's the whole thing is that word gets people going eh, i don't want to brag and i don't want i don't want i want people to feel good about it but then if you don't use that word people won't get the whole thing that i want you to brag so i don't know i got to work in this amy guth overthinking it as per usual that's what i do <laughs> that's the thing i do overthinking i think it. everybody overthinks we all about do. stuff at one point or another I, this is daily yeah. That's all I do, Curtis, is overthink things. I know when I was like in, in school, I would always overthink on it like a test. Like even though I, I knew like this answer would be here, I would overthink it and be like, Oh, yeah. is it this one? You know. Yeah. So Well, I want to poll everybody again because I have another thing I want to ask everybody. Okay. And that is about unpopular opinions. Please okay. call me with your <laughs> unpopular opinions or text 312-981-7200. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's one of those like, I know everybody thinks this, everybody thinks X, but I really think Y, and I know that's not a popular opinion. I have several of them. I think I'm powered on unpopular opinions. Twitter is the best place to find the most uh, resourceful unpopular opinions. There's some funny ones. There's some I cannot read on the air. I was just looking. I was like, oh, no, we're not sharing that. Um, do you have any unpopular opinions that you would like to share? Um, you know, I, I'm not a big believer in like resolutions. I'm more of like a simple goal sort of person. So like it's in the new year, it's 2020. So, you're, so your unpopular opinion is no on New Year's resolutions. Yeah, okay. at least for me. I know yeah. it works for other people, but for it me... Does it? Uh, I, I think it does. <laughs> okay. I think some people do go with that. At least people will tell you it works for them. But like, for example, last year, my goal was to like floss more, something like simple doable, easily attainable as that, you know, just spend, you know, a minute a day flossing, you know, because especially since the dentist. Oh, you said I, floss more. And I was like, oh, like Homewood floss more. Oh, flossing floss, more. <laughs> yes. Flossing more. Yes. Okay. Got it. Okay. I was like, oh, you're going to go to floss more. Wow. I could, I could that's drive a, you. That's yeah. cool. <laughs> I could take the train. I could do something. Yeah. You need to borrow my venture card or something. <laughs> something okay. Like, yeah. But no, something like as simple as that, where you take a minute out of your yes. day, you know, or even like something like, you know, do 10 push-ups in the morning. 
you know, that also can help you reach your, you know, weight loss goal, but you're also taking 30 seconds out of your day to do 10 push-ups. Yes. Something simple like that instead of saying, oh, I'm going to lose, you know, five to six pounds this month. Well, you might lose it in the first week, then you might gain it back right. and then lose maybe half of it. And then you might be down, oh, you know, I lost four pounds that month instead of... See, I'm with you. I'm not to take your unpopular opinion thunder and say it is in fact popular. Right now in the studio, it's popular because I'm with you on that. I feel like I I like setting a good goal, putting it in writing, I put it on a post-it, put it on my screen, you know, my computer so it's in front of me. I got that. I'm into that. But I've been thinking like the last few months that maybe that is not the way to go. That it's really, instead of saying like, I've got this big goal, this thing, that's fine. Break it down. Make it a littler thing. And so what I did this year, I did not set any big goals. I decided I would have like a focus every month. Like oh, the things you're yeah. talking about. Like this month, I'm just going to floss more often. This month, I'm going to really, like one of them, for example, I said, um, one of the months I'm going to be be even more careful about getting really good sleep. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when you don't get good sleep, you're a piece of garbage. You can't yeah. do anything. You know, you're, it's no good. It's aging us too fast. Like your brain resets. We need that. So I'm like, and I'm pretty good about getting sleep because I'm real worthless without it. But I'm like, I could do better. I could make sure the blinds are closed. So, I mean, I yeah. face I, my building, my, my bedroom window faces a building. So it's not like anyone's looking in. So I just don't close them. But then the light comes in from mm-hmm. out the street lights out. You know, I could do a better job of making the room dark or cooler yeah. or things like that. So uh, like sleep is one of them. Um, having a green smoothie every day is one of things like that where yeah. I'm not like, I'm not going to be attached to the outcome. I'm just going to have a focus of a thing. Yeah, we're going to get a few texts in already. Let's do it. Uh, 312, I think Bruce Springsteen is an awful singer. <laughs> that is their unpopular That's opinion. That's an unpopular opinion, but I know a lot of people that have it. I'm kind of neutral on Springsteen. Like, I, I understand that some friends of mine are rabid fans, and yeah. I'm like, mm, okay. There's some songs I, I can get behind, but others I, yeah. I'm kind of in the, the middle ground, too, like you are. Another unpopular opinion, I absolutely do not like bacon from the 870. That's a real unpopular opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, here's another one from the 630. Unpopular opinion, if everyone went vegan, climate change would not be an issue. I don't know if that's an unpopular opinion. I think a lot of people recognize that and just don't want to do, don't want to be vegan. Yeah. I, I don't know how I would feel about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not vegan. I'm not vegetarian, but I do recognize that that, yes, that would yeah, be it would helpful. Definitely help. Yeah. To, that would definitely be a huge step for climate change for i think sure. also just in climate change in general like the, the awareness issue i think mm-hmm. is definitely the biggest part of that mm-hmm. that's a whole other conversation but sure. those are a few texts we're getting in uh right now those are great 312-981-7200 i want to hear your unpopular opinions i want to hear them let's do this text me call me i want to hear them uh 630 just texted in ketchup can go on a hot dog <laughs> that's their unpopular opinion you know what ketchup on a hot dog 630 person i'm with you because i don't actually I don't, I understand that it's popular to freak out about that in Chicago. I don't, okay, okay, look, you're eating it. Do whatever you want. I mean, that's how I feel about Here, it. Here's how I feel. If I'm going to like a hot dog chain yeah. or like a, a, or a hot dog stand, sure. many, one of the many here in the city, no mustard. But like if you're at like a, a barbecue, like at a friend's house or something, and they might not have all the, uh, the condiments to make a quote unquote Chicago dog, then I feel like ketchup is okay. But if I'm going to like a Gene and Jude's or mm-hmm. a Portillo's or, or something like that, then no ketchup for me. You're not going to bust in a Portillo's with ketchup. Nope. I talked to a chef about this one time 
who said it actually depends on the kind of hot dog because there are some types of hot dogs that you would want the sweetness of the ketchup to balance it and not that kind of like warm kind of vinegariness from yeah. the mustard. And I was like, okay, valid point to chef. <laughs> Fair enough. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot, but people have some opinions. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine is has real strong feelings about ketchup on eggs. How do you feel about that? Oh, I, I don't. I see. I like both scrambled and over easy eggs. So I'm trying uh-huh. to picture ketchup on like an over easy egg. And no, I'm that's not, gross. Yeah, it's okay on scrambled. I, could, I would say scrambled. I could probably see it more likely. It's fine on a boiled egg. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's weird. People look at you weird, but <laughs> it's a thing. That is an unpopular opinion that I have. Um. You know, kind of one is that I have that people always go, oh, but you're a woman. Why don't you like that? I'm not crazy about chocolate. You know what? This girl I've been dating is not a, a big sweets person either. Yeah. She's not a, a she doesn't like any sweets like chocolate, um, you know, brownies, cookies, any of no. that stuff. Ice cream. Yeah. No. I mean, it's fine. It's not undelicious. Like yeah. the cheesecake we were talking about earlier. Delicious. If I'm going to have a dessert, it's probably going to be like fruit based, like lemon Lemon bunt cake is the most delicious thing in the world. For Ooh. real. I love like lemon cakes, lemon pound cake, lemon bars, lemon heads. There's so many good recipes, especially like grandparent recipes for yes. like lemon cookies or like lemon bars. Yes. The best. Lemon the stuff best. is good. I'm like, eh, chocolate's whatever. It's not gross, but I've never been like, oh, I've got to go have chocolate right now. I've never done yeah. that. Never, never. 630 texted in ketchup on mac and cheese. Is good or bad? I think it's, they're meaning good. As a a suggestion of, like, unpopular opinion, food. My my brother does that. My brother does that. My cousin, (laughs) I make fun of him for this. He does not enjoy, like, his definition of spicy food and mine are very different. Uh I will eat, I in fact, I have eaten one of the world's hottest hot sauces on this station on live air and did not swear about it. So (laughs) I enjoy, I mean, it hurt. Oh, was that a brag? Is that a brag that you? No, know? it was a. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. From I mean, it, it could have been a brag, but it was also it was more of a. I'm an idiot. You should never do that on live bro- on a live broadcast because I wanted to swear. And poor Tom Hush, who's Nick DeGilio's producer yeah. at the time, he was my producer. And as long as I live, I will never forget the look on his face in the producer booth because he was like hovering over the button that you hit if the host <laughs> yeah. accidentally swears. He was ready, but he was like, I also kind of had a cup of water nearby. I didn't know if you were going to pass out because you went purple. <laughs> he was, I mean, it was really hot. Then David Jennings came downstairs. This is when we were in Trimming Tower. David Jennings came downstairs. He was like, it can't be that hot. No women like hot sauce, whatever. And he came down and he tried it. Now, the guy that brought this hot sauce, this is one of the high, hottest hot sauces in the world. He took a toothpick and dipped it in the hot sauce and touched it onto a plastic spoon. And then he said, don't try more than that. And that's, I didn't even try the whole thing. I took a clean tooth toothpick and touched it in the dot that he had placed yeah. and then put that on my tongue and I had that reaction. David wow. Jennings came downstairs, grabbed the whole spoon and put it in his mouth and he was like, see, it's nothing. And then turned around and faced Tom and Tom was like, and I thought he was going to pass out. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> but which is to say, so all, all that is to say, my cousin does not like spicy food. He feels like pasta sauce is too spicy it's too meaning not just heat but also too many spices are in it yeah mixed up so he won't like spaghetti sauce he won't do it he puts ketchup on on spaghetti noodles oh that just sounds gross i know i was like you're you're offending a lot of italians everywhere (laughs) italians everywhere are just gonna have contempt for you sir don't do that but he loves it he thinks that butter and ketchup 
Oof, rough. Anyway, let's hear more of your unpopular opinions. We're going to take a break. Give us a call or text 312-981-7200. We'll talk to you on the other side of this break here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN, it's Amy Guth in for Pete McMurray today with you till 5 o'clock. Coming up in the 4 o'clock hour, we're going to be talking with a sports writer named Frederick Frummer. He has written a book about the Washington Nationals, kind of the history of the team. Very interested to talk with him. But right now, I'm asking you, I want to hear your unpopular opinions. Some of these are Cracking me up. I'm loving these. Uh, Curtis, you said there's some new um, new texts coming in. What you got? Yeah, from Deanna. Unpopular opinion. I dislike all breakfast foods except cereal and toast. Okay. I prefer to start my day with lunch. Never would I start my day with a donut or pastry. So I mean, I'm with you on that. I, I like, I love breakfast, but I if, if it's sweet, I don't like oh, sweet give me, breakfast. Give me pancakes and no. bacon and eggs and all that stuff. Give me that all day long. I'll have that for dinner. Eggs and stuff like that, and but not the sweet. Not people that start their day with like a Danish. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> that is backwards. That is dessert. Uh, here's a text from eight four seven. No coffee or coffee flavored everything or anything. Hmm. Okay. That's that's also me too. I don't like coffee. That person probably sleeps way better than the rest of us who drink <laughs> coffee all day long. Uh, and then from the six three zero unpopular opinion, I don't like white claw. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Some people don't. Which I'm also kind of on that. I, there's only one. I like the raspberry white claw. That's it. I don't like the other flavors. I'm team grapefruit. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. It's fine. That's hilarious. People have some feelings about white claw. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's more of like a, a millennial thing, too. I am hardly possibly. a millennial. I am far beyond millennial, and I think it's fine. I think it's... here. Here's where white claw is handy. If you're in the... Again, we're going to summertime activities. Mm-hmm. Chilling in the pool. You're just going to hang out. You don't want to get drunk, but you want to have a little, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to get tipsy, yeah. but a nice little refreshment. It's, I, don't, I feel like if you drink a beer, it's heavy. I don't like yeah, beer. I'm not like a beer a, person. It's a lighter anymore. alternative to get some sort of like booze in A you. little something. Yeah, It's kind of like, right. um, like a Mike's Hard Lemonade sort of thing. Yes. Minus the fact that it's lemonade sort of thing versus a seltzer. And but, it's, and it's you know, no carb or low carb, yeah. all the different brands of them. It's really interesting. I've been talking about this um, on the Cranes podcast that I do, uh, Cranes Daily Gist. I've been talking about that this for a couple of months, how the beer industry, because a lot of that is, court, you know, headquartered here. Um, the beer industry is really kind of in a crisis right now around craft beer because they, I mean, that was such a huge thing. It's kind of a bubble. It's oversaturated. Chicago is particularly hard hit by that because we have so many craft beer brands Uh that it's harder to get on the shelves or onto a beer tap unless you have like a big company behind you repping you. I was going to say, I think think in the suburbs is where probably the the craft beers do better Mm -hmm. because it's, you probably serve one community and get people that want to, go out to different stuff whereas here in the city there's so many different craft breweries all over the place yeah it makes it fun to kind of try different places all the time but to really kind of just enjoy like one establishment as your own craft brewery like local craft brewery that's probably best suited out in the suburbs that's how i would yeah maybe well a lot of craft craft breweries are trying to um and a lot of just beer big beer companies are trying to figure out how to recoup some of that yeah. business. And so hard seltzer, that was the the story of the summer. I feel like 
all of them were trying to get into that space and make yeah. that money and get in the White Claw game, which is that's a local company, um, and trying to you know buy those kind of companies up, things like that. But then also, um, yeah, there there was a lot of competition around that beer or smaller beer companies that didn't want to have mm-hmm. be backed by a big company. They were looking to have like a brew pub so they could serve food and make some of their money like that. It was really interesting to kind of follow the beer. The beer money. Text from the 815. I don't do Facebook at all. That's an unpopular opinion. That is a person I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> I think that's great. Because... I didn't get Facebook until I was a freshman in college. Well, see. So I missed all like, which was kind of a blessing in disguise because I didn't have all like the embarrassing yeah. young Curtis high school photos on my Facebook page or anything like that. Well, see, I was long out of college by the time Facebook was around. And you at first you had to have an EDU email address to even use it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, that's for students. That's not even my thing. So it wasn't even on my radar. I was all over the MySpace. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even have a MySpace. I heard I had people like friends who had a MySpace, I wasn't involved on MySpace. It was goofy. It was whatever. Yeah. It was whatever. Uh, and then, I mean, I like Twitter. Sometimes I hate Twitter. Sometimes I think Twitter is a garbage site because it's terrible and mean. But sometimes it's like, ah, I've been on there a long time, so I know my people. I think it depends on like who your what your feed is, like where you're yeah. getting your... Who you're following. Yeah, who you're following. Totally. Because you can easily fix that, Yeah, I, I feel like. You can get rid of people real quick. Yeah. Click, 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 done. Bye. Yeah. Never talk to you again. <laughs> and I like, I mean, I don't want to live in a... And an echo chamber. So I try, I follow a bunch of different news sources and a lot of different reporters on a lot of different topics because I'm curious. Um, you know, and a lot of times those reporters might, might tweet an expert or retweet an expert and you learn. And, you know, I, I try to keep a good balance, but some of it's like, oh man, why are you being so mean? Or when it's, when it's cru- like you can deliver a hard opinion without being cruel about it. And that's to me, it's like, if you're doing that at someone else's expense, mm, I don't have, a but I also feel like Twitter has built up a, not a, sort of a reputation, but I, I think some of the, the big followers and users have kind of come to a way where they, they don't respectfully like engage in a conversation. They have to kind of totally. go immediately to the, like the snarky comment to kind of show them who's on top. Oh, snark. Makes sense. Yeah. Snark is the default setting of the internet yeah, uh-huh. for sure. And I wish it wasn't that I'm always saying this to people when people, um, like I'll tweet something, maybe it's like, uh, we have a story here or, you know, uh, one of the news organizations, Sun Times or whatever. Somebody has a story. I tweet it and people won't read the story. They'll just have a, Make gut, a comment. Re- gut reaction to the headline so they don't even know if I wrote it or not. They'll just be like, you people that wrote this. I'm like, yo, yo, yo. So much could be fixed if you made a rule for yourself to always lead with a question. If you're mad, yeah, start with a question. Just try it. Just, just try it. Because 90% of the time when I get a snarky comment, it is... I shouldn't say 90 because sometimes it's just dudes going to be gross dudes. But God, um, a lot of times if it's about a particular... Uh, piece of content that i've shared it's usually because they have misunderstood it yeah and i said oh well no they address that in the piece in the you know sixth paragraph they say this and oh okay whatever just read it a read it before you comment on it b lead with question i feel like though that what you just described people commenting on something right away carries over from facebook i feel like that's where it all started was people commenting on stuff on facebook because they want to get into a discussion in, in an internet war, if you yeah, will. totally. And then that carries over onto Twitter more so. Oh, it's sometimes kind of exhausting. Although, I, I mean, this, yeah, the snark is exhausting. I think it's interesting how people... I've noticed this shift in language. If you'll go, hey, you know, so-and-so, 
I saw this really interesting, you know, article in the New York Times about the thing we were talking about the other day. Did you see it? People are saying see instead of read, mm-hmm. right? They're oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah, what'd you think? Oh, I didn't read it, but I saw it. <laughs> well, what's the point? Yeah. So I think it's not even we don't even skim. We just kind of like headline, headline, headline. Oh, that's interesting. I'll read two paragraphs. I'm bored. Headline, headline, headline. I think that's how a lot of people are consuming news because there's so much coming at us. Yeah. Right. I don't think it's because we're like intellectually lazy, although some people are. I think it has more to do with overwhelm. I think we've got. So much. I mean, so much. Like right now, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven screens in front of me. There's a lot of stuff here, right? And a whole board full of buttons. There's two different TV. There's a TV that's not even on, but we usually have a couple news channels going. Like there's a lot of information coming to people who aren't in this business, who aren't monitoring news channels for a living, right? There's, I think it's easy to be overwhelmed. And so the idea of sitting and reading a like reading a whole article, that sounds exhausting. It almost sounds yeah. like a, a luxury on some levels. But I, that's, I mean, that's mostly one day a week I will just read, read, read because I think it's real important to do. Anyway, lots of, lots of media literacy rants ahead, friends. That's a thing I'm always good for. All right, we're going to take a break, come back with a really awesome guest. We're going to be talking baseball back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. It's Amy Guth here in for Pete McMurray. Thanks so much for being with us and sharing part of your Sunday afternoon with me. Always grateful to you for doing that. Well, we have had a busy show. We still got an hour to go. Lots to do. We are joined now by Frederick Frommer. He is the author of several baseball books, including You Gotta Have Heart, which is a history of Washington baseball. He's also the head of sports PR at the Dewey Square Group in Washington, D.C. You've seen his work in the New York Times, Washington Post, Politico. The Atlantic, CNN, all kind of places. Frederick, thanks so much for joining us today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate you taking the time. So, you know, talk to us about your book. I think it's any time that, that history intersects with any big topic that we're talking a lot about. It's always a, a fascinating, a fascinating point for me, especially, you know, the, it's been a very, uh, it's been a, a big year for the Washington Nationals. And I'm going to, before you get off the phone, I'm going to ask you about, uh, ask you about what you see in their future. But, but talk to me about the book and, and why you chose them to, to write this big history. Sure. So uh, the first edition came out when the uh, Expos moved to Washington, and I have a new edition coming out um, in the spring that captures last year's World Series title. Um, the thing I found really interesting about the Washington Senators was actually how, how sad a story it is for the most part. Um, they had some incredible teams in the 1920s and 30s, but um, were pretty bad for, for most of the, the time after that. And then, of course, Washington didn't have a team for 33 years, from 1971 to 2004. So um, it, it was really uh, kind of a long buildup. You know, when Washington won the World Series last year, it was the first time they had won a World Series in 95 years. So not quite as long as the Cubs, uh, <laughs> but uh, pretty long nonetheless. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And and so that that's kind of where I'm curious about the significance of baseball in D.C. I mean, that is the, the politics town. You can feel it in the air every time you're there. It's definitely, that is what's front and center. And here is a, a city that, that didn't have that, that connection to baseball for a long time, and then baseball returned. So what is that role there in D.C.? Well, it, it's a good point that you you make about the politics. Um, you know, uh, for many years, uh, the president and uh, the Washington Senators were tied very closely. There was a tradition going back to President Taft of throwing out the first pitch 
uh, of the opening day. Washington would open the season a day before everyone else. And the way they would do it back then, uh, unlike today when the pitcher, when the president goes to the pitcher's mound or wherever throws out the first pitch, does that, the president back then would be sitting in his box and he would throw the ball up for grabs. And players from both um, both teams would, would fight for it, kind of like uh, bridesmaids at a wedding. And whoever would get the ball would bring it over to the president. There's actually a funny uh, White Sox connection to this. Uh, a guy named Tim Rivera, who was a White Sox outfielder, um, he wound up getting the ball that President uh, Kennedy threw out um, in the early 60s. And he brought the ball over to Kennedy, and uh, Kennedy scribbled his signature very quickly. And Rivera said, what kind of jungle, I said, what kind of, his name was Jungle Jim, was his, was his nickname. What kind of uh, crap autograph is this? Um, I can't bring him to any bar on the South Side. And anyone's going to believe me, the president signed this. Sign this better. It's so Kennedy laughed the whole time and signed him in baseball. <laughs> That's a great story. I love stories like that. Just like little, little snippets of history. That's so interesting. So for this book, you did a lot of interviews with both politicians and sports figures. What stands out to you? Maybe a surprise remark or insight from one of the people that you that you interviewed or perhaps some uh, surprising overlap between the politics and the sports areas? Well, my favorite story actually is an overlap. Um, it uh, involves an outfielder named Roy Sievers, who was a slugger on the Senators. They were really, really bad uh, at the time. This is in the late 50s. And uh, believe it or not, they had a losing streak that had reached like 12 games or something like that. And um, the way Roy Sievers tells the story is that uh, at that time, uh, Richard Nixon was the vice president. And he's in the Soviet Union uh, for the famous uh, kitchen debate uh, with Khrushchev. And but Nixon was a huge baseball fan, and he followed the team even from Moscow, which is not easy to do back then in the era before the Internet. And so um, he called uh, Roy Sievers, his favorite player, and he was kind of like outraged at how bad they were doing. And, uh, you know, what's going on with you guys? And so he said, well, we're not hitting, we're not pitching, you know, whatever it is. So um, Nixon said, i tell you what, um, I want you to meet me at the airport when I land uh, in a day or two. And uh, so he did, and um, the players met Nixon, and, and he was kind of shoot him out and asked what was going wrong. And he said, tell you what, I'll be at the ballpark tomorrow night, because Nixon considered himself a good luck charm. In fact, they usually won when he was there. Um, but when he got to the ballpark, they lost anyway. Their, their losing streak hit something like 17 or 18 games before they finally snapped it. <laughs> I love that. That's a great story. What interesting insight of things like that. Um, you wrote a piece back in, I think, November, December-ish for the Washington Post about the weird similarities between the beginning and end of D.C.'s baseball woes. Talk to me about that piece, if you would. Yeah, uh, so the 1924 team was the uh, only time that Washington had won a World Series before last year. And um, they both had the, this sort of uh, hold on, on America. The 24 centers, much more so, because uh, the previous three World Series had been New York Yankees or New York Giants. People were sick and tired of seeing New York dominate everything. They liked this young upstart team from Washington, and they really wanted Walter Johnson to finally get a chance to pitch in the World Series. The Nationals weren't quite as the sentimental favorites that the Senators were, but I think that people did kind of rally around them a little bit, especially in the playoffs. Um, you saw quotes from um, sports writers and even a pitcher on the Dodgers after the Do- Dodgers had lost to the Nationals. Um, he sent a tweet out saying uh, how, how glad he was that the Nats won the World Series, saying, if you couldn't beat us, we're glad you, you, you finally won. Um, both teams um, started off really poorly. Uh, the Senators um, were 
24 and 26, and everybody probably remembers that the Nationals started out 19 and 31. They both finished the season, believe it or not, 14 and 6 uh, in the last 20 games. And they both had this really great uh, road record, ability to play on the road. Um, in, the, um, in the case of the Senators, those last 20 games, believe it or not, were all on the road. They ended the season with a 20-game road, uh, road swing. And, of course, for the, uh, the Nationals, it was all in the playoffs, you know, the playoff magic, uh, especially winning those four World Series games on the road, losing three at home, and uh, as you might know, that they became the only team in Major League Baseball history to win a World Series with all four road wins, not only Major League Baseball, but the only team um, in, in any American sport, including the uh, National Hockey League and the National Basketball Association. That's so interesting. You have so much knowledge about this. You have like great passion for this team. Are you a D.C. native? I'm not. I'm from New York originally. Okay. But I've been say. here about 20 years, so I'm kind of uh, kind of native by now, I suppose. Okay. Yeah. Same. Same with me here in Chicago. I've been here 20 years, so so I call it home. Indeed. Well, I'm going to bring in uh, my producer Curtis Cook. He is also he's the sports producer here at at WGM Radio, so I'm sure he's very keen to jump into this conversation too. So I want to make sure that he can join this conversation too, because he he too is a bit of an encyclopedia of sort of sports knowledge, Curtis. Sure. Yeah. Fred, is there still any sort of possibility that, and I know this was discussed earlier and this probably isn't going to happen anymore, um, but was there still a a chance, because the connection between the Expos organization and the Nationals organization, is there still a chance that there could possibly be uh, a team going back to Montreal at some point? Do you think that's possible? I do think it's possible. I think it would be a good thing, actually. Um, You know, the Expos had a really good tradition in Montreal. They had a great following. Um, after a while, the, um, the, the the fan base, you know, was really kind of turned off because they have there was no radio deal. Uh, the team wasn't on on the radio. There was no TV deal, I should say. Um, so the fans really couldn't even follow the team on television. Um, they had really bad ownership. And after a while, uh, Major League Baseball wound up taking ownership of the team and running it. So there really wasn't anything that um, anything could really hold against the Washington, against the Montreal fans. It was really more about how the team was run. But I think if you put a good team there, um, there is a good chance that it would do well. And there is actually a pretty big effort underway in Montreal to bring a team back. Uh, I think Warren Cromartie, the former Expo star, is involved in it. Um, there are some uh, heavy hitters like Bombsman. So uh, I think it could happen. And, and Commissioner Rob Manford is on record as saying he wants to expand by at least two teams. And he's mentioned Montreal as a viable candidate. And there is a, a Chicago, Chicago connection. Uh, the general manager of the Nationals, Mike Rizzo, is from Chicago. He was a scout for the White Sox. Um, can you talk about the job that he's done? Because he got a little bit of a, a criticism when he didn't re-sign Bryce Harper, but instead he went ahead and re-signed his World Series MVP in Steven Strasburg. Um, and not only that, without losing a guy like Bryce Harper, they went on to beat the Astros, who are one of the best teams in baseball this year. Can you just talk a little bit about the job that Mike has done and, and just about how he approached this offseason? Because he also let one of his top stars, Anthony Rendon, walk in free agency as well. Yeah, Rizzo is a real uh, kind of old school uh, baseball type, or uh, you know, a, a long time scout. Um, and it was an interesting contrast between the Astros and the Nationals, in the sense that um, the Astros were this high tech, you know, uh, analytically analytically driven team. They really didn't rely on scouts at all uh, for the most part. I mean, just here and there. I don't even think I think I read that they hadn't even sent scouts to see the the Nats uh, in the playoffs, or maybe it was in, in a previous series. But on the other hand. Um, Rizzo believes very strongly in scouting. He believes in kind of old-school mentality. Not to say that he doesn't believe in analytics, but he doesn't put, I think, quite the premium 
that a lot of guys do do today. Um, and, you know, it was a big uh, decision to let Bryce Harper go. I thought it might have been more of an ownership call at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, it's worked out well for Washington. Clearly, they won the World Series. Um, and, you know, you really can't argue with Rizzo's track record. Uh, even before this uh, past season, when they won the World Series, they've actually bounced very successful teams. You know, they got eliminated in the first round four times in the past decade. Um, and sometimes that's just bad luck or, you know, maybe the team just wasn't built for the playoffs. But they certainly had a very competitive team for all that time. So he's had a really good record. And um, I think he's uh, he could probably run for mayor in this town. <laughs> I love that idea. That's funny. All right. Well, um, we are going to take a little break because I still have many things I want to ask you about. And we're going to uh, just do that real quick. On the other side of this break, more conversation with Frederick Fromer. He is a sports writer and author of the book, You Gotta Have Heart, A History of Washington Baseball. Back here in just a moment on 720 WGN. 720 WGN, it's Amy Guth in for Pete McMurray with you till five o'clock. Where does the time go? We've been just chatting away. So right now we are joined by phone by Frederick Fromer. He is a baseball writer. He writes about all kinds of sports things. And we've been talking about his book, which is a history of the Washington Nationals. It is a really, really interesting book. Anytime history is involved, I'm into this book. So I highly recommend this book. So I appreciate your time with us today, Frederick. I appreciate you taking time out on the weekend to chat for sure. Well, other questions that I have for you, um, you also work at the Dewey Square Group. You you cover sports business there. Tell me more about that organization and exactly the work that you're doing there. Sure, it's a it's a public relations firm in Washington, um, and my uh, focus is on sports clients. So, for example, I work with the uh, main commission on intercollegiate athletics. Uh, another Chicago tie-in. The co-chair of the group is Arnie Duncan. Oh, yeah. um, so they do a lot in college sports reform. Yeah, I've uh, done uh, last year did a bunch of work with the NHL among the, about around their corporate social responsibility, um, and you know I, I really enjoy any kind of sports work. But anytime there's like a kind of political tie-in, you know, like they're, like with Washington baseball, that's what I really enjoy doing the most. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. How how long have you uh, been been doing that as well? I've been there for about four years. So um, I was a journalist with the Associated Press for about 16 years. Um, did a beat on the intersection of sports and politics, which kind of got me into this this into this area, and uh, and then left APA about uh, about four years ago. Interesting. Interesting. I bet that was a very interesting beat. I love beats that are intersection beats <laughs> that are like manufacturing and politics, or manufacturing and government, or whatever. <laughs> It was a lot of fun. I think I was a little ahead of my time because with uh, President Trump now, I think it would have been a much more interesting beat than it was back then. Yeah, I, I have no doubt for sure, especially, you know, where, where all those things come together. And so we've been talking about your book. What uh, what book is next for you? I know you've, you've written more than one, but we've just been talking about this most recent one. What What are you working on ahead? Well, actually, I just finished a new edition of this book. Um, it, it's going to be coming out in the spring. Um, Chuck Todd has, write, has written the forward to it, uh, so that's the, that's my biggest project at the moment. That's that's no small project. <laughs> Getting a forward written by by someone with a profile like that is uh, that's no small task at all. Um, any any other uh, book news you can share beyond that? Like a, maybe a, what you'd love to tackle next. 
Oh, that's a great question. Um, nothing that comes to mind off the top of my head. Um, I have to give that some thought, but I appreciate you uh, you checking in on that. Yeah, it's all good. You know, because sometimes people give really wild answers and then people are like, oh, you know, like someone's listening that could make that happen or would be a good source for it. So you never know. You never know. All right. Well, we're, start- we're starting yeah. to kind of wind down the time a little bit, but uh, I, of course, want to ask you, here we are. We're about a month out, a month out from pitchers and catchers reporting. What is your prediction for the Nationals in the year ahead? Well, I'm not that good at making predictions as far as like who will be in the World Series. I, I think for sure the Nationals will make the playoffs again. Um, you know, they have. It's always hard to repeat in baseball. There's uh, a couple things working against you. One is there's a sort of a typical uh, hangover effect from the year before. Um, then you might lose some key players. The Nationals certainly did with Anthony Rendon. Um, and they're trying to maybe sign Josh Allenson, but it looks like that probably isn't going to happen. So you've got uh, you've got those two things working against you. But on the other hand, they've made some really big pickups in the offseason. They've solidified their bullpen, which is actually the worst bullpen of any team to make the playoffs ever um, last year. So uh, it was kind of amazing that they were able to, to overcome that. And it shouldn't be uh, it should actually be a strength instead of weakness next year. So I think that they'll uh, they'll be back in it in the playoffs. And then you know once it happens, kind of all bets are off. It's just who gets hot at the right time. That's right. And I think it'll be an interesting time to, uh, you know, to be in D.C. during an election year, but also kind of a lot of people looking at sports with new eyes. Right. There's probably a little bit of bandwagonism. I know that happens here a lot. We have a big winner and suddenly there's right. like Blackhawks <laughs> fans coming out of the woodwork that were not Blackhawks fans before, things like that. So I think that'll be interesting. It seems like a lot of things to watch at one time in, in one town is what it sounds like. Absolutely. It's going to, you're right about 2020 is going to be incredibly, uh, a lot of stuff going on in Washington sports wise and certainly political wise. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, we will check in with you perhaps later in the season, see how things are going and uh, check in about that, where, where politics are intersecting with it, too. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. For those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm going to be sure and tweet out links to the book and to all the good stuff and some of some recent work that you've done there. So thanks so much for your time, Frederick Fromer. Appreciate you being with us today. Thank you, Amy. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. So, you know, that was, uh, I think that's so interesting. Like I said, I love where history intersects with other stuff. And I could tell, Curtis, I could tell you were like, let me ask him a thing. I got a thing. I got a thing. <laughs> I appreciate that you jumped in with that. Because you, I mean, you're in, you're deeper in sports than I am. I'm, I'm a fan and I watch and I enjoy. Yeah. Well, now, that's, that's part of my stuff here. I, I do. That's your thing. White Sox coverage. I do the Blackhawks yeah. coverage. I mean, I'm all over the place with sports stuff here. Now, Bears. Horse racing. I got you. Okay. <laughs> I will go toe to toe with anybody on horse racing. I will talk about that all day long. You got some insider scoops for us? I've picked several of the last nine Derby winners. Wow. This was a thing. All right. Harry Tynowitz and I used to talk about this all the time. I really enjoy because I'll like get the racing format. I just pick the best names that I like. Well, there's the there's the hunch bet for sure. People yeah. just be like, um, that jockey's wearing my favorite color. That's my lucky number. This and this. Now, you got to look at that horse. You got to look at weather. You got to track the weather coming up for the Derby. You got to look at weather patterns. You got to look at not only the sire, but also the mare. Is this horse a mutter? You got to look at their last 16 races. You got to see what they've doing. You got to get Wow. Them. You don't All play. Right. Yeah. You don't play around with that. <laughs> so I, you. I look at that because I, I think, I think. That while there's plenty of things you can say, okay, this is that horse's sire, so yeah. therefore I think, you know, he has this characteristic. A lot of their temperament comes from the mare. I Got believe it. this. So there's some horses that if you if it's a little bit of drizzle, they don't care. It's not a muddy track yet. They'll just run, 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 run. They don't care. They don't care. 
when it gets muddy, that's when you're like, this horse does not like running in slop. They don't like it, right? So you've got horses, but, but there's things like when there's a little bit of drizzle on their face, they get mad and they start flicking their head around. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's from the mare. The mare does. You got to find out stuff. All right. You, these are things. Horse racing expert over here. I like it. Well, I don't, I, I don't know if you were, I, I don't think you were here, but there was a year, maybe six or seven years ago. No, I wasn't here at that Okay. Point. Maybe five. I don't know. Time all, I don't know. Jumbles. I've just hit over two years being here. Is that right? Yep. Oh my gosh. I feel like you've been here for so long. <laughs> I like, you're just what, such a, you're like me. a permanent fixture here. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like that. I can't imagine before. Um, anyway, I, there, when I used to come on right, right after sports on Saturdays, one time they were talking about the Derby. And I totally disagreed. So I like came in on the break to do crosstalk. And I was like, guys, I don't agree with your assessment. And here's why. And we came back and, and um, Carm and Tynowitz were like, okay, take us to school. What's up? And I was like, here's who you got. And here's why. And I started just mapping out. I was like, here's going to, this is your trifecta pick. But if you want to go like an exact wheel, do this. Blah, blah, blah. And I just started going about all the betting. Having worked with the two of them, I can picture exactly how their faces are. Oh, when yeah. Started going Both off. Of, yeah. That, I think that might be when, when Tynowitz started going, goo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> doing that thing. Yeah, both of them were like, huh, what just happened? And it was a whole thing. And so ever since then, they like Tynowitz and I would always talk about like, what's the, what's the horse plan for this new race coming up? I like it. Yeah. I'm going to have to consult you about some picks when it comes to the Derby time. Because I do like the Super Bowl prop bets. Mm-hmm. I've, like won, prop I've bet. won money on that, that sort of stuff. The biggest one I won was uh, the Gatorade being tossed on last year. <laughs> Nice. That was that was the I won I think a, a couple hundred bucks from that. Which prop better on Gatorade? There was a couple. There was one. Uh, what color Gatorade would yeah, be dumped? The, okay, that was over the, one, the coach. Yeah, that was one I saw. The winning coach, and it was like red, yellow, blue, green, um, pink. You know, all that. What was different it? Colors. It was blue. Nice. So I, I won that. Nice, nicely done. <laughs> I think I think orange was the favorite. Yes. But I was like, well, if you look at the two teams, none of them have. Orange. Orange. <laughs> it was blue and yellow and blue and silver. So your odds for blue are pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. I'm with you on that. I love that kind of stuff. That's so fun. I also did the like over under on the anthem. Oh. Because they have like the over under set for like, oh, yeah. like a, a minute and a half set for the yeah. over under of the length of the anthem. And then you got to see who's singing it. And there's always you know. a bunch of weird ones around the, the halftime show. Yeah. That are funny and weird. And yeah. Yeah. No, when it comes to horses, I'm just like, let's pick some numbers and do the thing. All right. We got to take a break. More things coming up on the other side of that break here on 720 WGN.